Blog Talk Radio. Hi, thanks for joining me. This is utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. Brand new show today. This is our brand new live legal and business Q&A, Law Basics and More, with me, your host, Peter Lamont. I'm glad to be back doing live shows. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about the new format here for the live show. So every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, we're going to be doing a live show that will be streaming live on blogtalkradio.com. You can get to that by the links that I provide on the social media sites affiliated with utlradio.com, or you can go directly to our brand new rebuilt, redesigned site, utlradio.com, and you can click on the link there and listen to the live streaming podcast. Now, what's so great about this live show is that it's going to give you the opportunity to call in and talk to me directly I'm going to give you the call-in number now and then a few times throughout the show. It's 347-855-8831. What's going to happen when you call in is you will be put onto the switchboard and placed on hold for a brief time. And then as soon as I'm ready for the next question, I'm going to pick up the next caller. Now, um, what's new and exciting about this is that typically on Thursday, we were doing uh, an interview show with an entrepreneur and, and learning some of backstory about that entrepreneur and it was great and and I had a good time doing it and um, you know but I think what I found is that everybody and their brother is doing one of these interview shows where they got an entrepreneur and they talk to them about how they've managed their business and it's it's great and it's helpful but I want to do something that's different that's unique something that is beneficial beyond what you can get from 40 or 50 different other podcasts. And that's this idea of a live legal Q&A show. Now, for those of you who are brand new to the show, let me just explain to you a little bit about it. So utlradio.com is really a do-it-yourself or self-help resource center for legal and business issues. I want you to have enough in the way of practical knowledge to be able to handle some of your own legal and business matters without having to hire a business consultant or a lawyer. And so that's the whole premise behind utlradio.com. You can read more about the backstory, why I created this, uh, right on the website. And you just click on the tab and it'll, it'll tell you everything. Um, but, but so you guys understand, I want you to have the knowledge to be able to handle your own legal and business matters. So... That's why I decided we're going to go back to a live format for Thursdays, but we're going to bring in this idea of Q&A. So this is your opportunity. If you have a legal question and you haven't submitted it already via email or Skype or some other method, and on top of that, you maybe have a business question or just need to bounce something business or legal related off of somebody, this is your chance. This is your opportunity to take advantage of what utlradio.com is all about, and that is providing information to help you help yourself, and I'm very excited about that. So before we get into a summary of what's going to happen today, I just want to say again that the website, utlradio.com, brand new, rebuilt in 2016, 
I'm really excited about it. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. I'd like to welcome everybody who is watching on Meerkat. Um, so I'm back on that platform, pretty excited about it. And uh, let's tell you what we're going to talk about today. So today on the live show, I want to bring in a discussion about something that uh, I went through yesterday, which is I testified at, at, my, at a deposition. I was a witness for a particular company that I represent. And that's so unique because most of the time, a lawyer is the one asking the questions, not the one having questions asked of him or her. And if you are um, regular subscribers to the YouTube channel, you'll know that, I guess, uh, a day before yesterday, I talked to you a little bit about depositions and what it is, <clears throat> how it works, why you need to know about it, especially if you're going to be hand handling your own legal matter. And uh, I figured today I'd give you some insight into what happened yesterday. So we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to open it for the live questions. And I've got some questions I want to go through that were previously submitted via email this week. Uh, everything from buying a car to you know, being wrongfully suspended at work. Can you sue a builder? Do you have grounds for a lawsuit? Unpaid debt issues, verbal agreements, and um, you know, temporary workers. A whole host of questions we're going to get to. Uh, remember that if you want to call in and talk to me live, it's 347-855-8831. That's going to take you to the switchboard. All right, let's get started. Um, so let me talk about this deposition. So for those of you who have not been following the show, know nothing about what I'm talking about, a deposition is a question and answer session that is done generally at an attorney's office and uh, a reporter is present and they take down at, you know, or a stenographer, whatever you want to call it. They take down everything that you're saying verbatim, word for word. And what happens is one party, one attorney, will desire to take the deposition, the, the oral testimony, the verbal testimony of a witness. They'll set up the deposition. You'll go to their office. You'll sit down at a big conference room table or small conference room table, and they will ask you questions. The court reporter will take down everything that you say, and there are other, you know, if the case is big enough, there are other lawyers there as well that will ask you questions. Now, if you're in a lawsuit, if you're representing yourself pro se, if you're handling the matter on your own, you at some point, if it's litigation, will most likely be faced with either the um, choice of taking a deposition or you might be forced to give or provide deposition testimony. So I want to talk for a minute about the whole process. So let me explain what happened to me yesterday. So I went over to New York City, and I went into the building where I was going to have my deposition taken. And basically, so you have some backstory, I was testifying on behalf of a company that I represent, and their general counsel. And I was, um, I had hands-on information about an incident, a lawsuit that was pending. And so they wanted to take my deposition. So I went to the uh, office yesterday, and I'm going to describe to you exactly what it was like so that if you have to do this on your own, you know. Because one of the biggest challenges that I see for people representing themselves is, is nervousness, is anxiety, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to act, not knowing what to say. And that, that can also be such a, a detriment because you go into something panicked and nervous, and it just kind of takes you off track, throws you 
you know, out of your out of your mindset, your mind frame that you need to have. So picture this. I go up to the 14th floor of this off building in New York and walk into a reception area. I tell the receptionist I'm here for my deposition. And she says to me, take a seat. And then a lawyer comes out and gets me. And they bring me into this conference room. Now we're on the 14th floor of a building in New York City. And we're overlooking, um, I think I was overlooking uh, the East River. And I was turned, a little turned around in the building. So I go in, and so here's the big conference room. People, I sit down, and there are approximately eight lawyers at the table. Now, me being a lawyer, I've already seen this before. But imagine you as a non-lawyer at a deposition walking into a room, and all the lawyers in their suits and their mad faces are there looking at you. What, what do you feel? I mean, you're going to feel panic, right? So what I did is I, I went in. I put my stuff down. And I know that from the moment you walk into that door, the moment you step foot into that conference room, the attorneys are sizing you up. They're looking at you. They're trying to analyze your demeanor, the way that you are uh, carrying yourself. Are you nervous? Does it look like you don't want to be there? Are you uh, shaking? Because people shake. They visibly shake. You know, what is, what is, what do you look like? What are you dressed like? And they have to actually write this stuff down in, in a deposition summary, generally for their clients, so that the clients can kind of get a handle on who you are, who, who you as the witness are. So I know that, right? So I walk in confidently. Um, I put my jacket down, my coat down, my bag down. I, uh, I ask to use the men's room. I come back. I get myself some water. And I'm ready to go. So I sit down. And I see the lawyer who's going to be questioning me, just a stack of documents. It hasn't been six inches thick. But you know what? You don't react to any of it. You just, you can't. You, this is like a poker game in a sense. You are there for one purpose, and that is to tell the truth. And I think if you keep that in mind, then this whole process becomes a lot easier. Because what can you do wrong? How can you screw it up if you're telling the truth? So knowing that you're going to tell the truth before you get into the deposition, I think it's a huge confidence booster because that's all you have to do. So um, then what happens? So the court reporter says to me, can I have your name and your address? And I give it to her. And then she says, all right, are we ready to go? And everybody says yes. And she asks me to raise my hand. So I do. And I've got to swear under oath that the testimony I'm about to give is true. Okay. That a deposition is in court in front of a judge and a jury. You are testifying under oath. What you say can be used against you. What you say is testimony, sworn testimony if you're on a witness stand. So <clears throat> they start off with some background. Uh, you know, what's my education? Uh, what's what's my you know work history? Don't get caught up in those questions. Don't get caught in that background stuff. They're trying to just develop um, core and some background information about you, maybe provide insight into your level of education or whatever. Don't get caught up in that. They can ask you questions that are completely, your attorney directs you not to answer them, you answer them. It's not admissible at trial. Who cares? That's my position as an attorney. Who cares? You know, you can ask me whatever you want, but 
if you use something that I, I deem to be inadmissible, I'm going to object with at the time you, you try to do that evidence or testimony. So um, don't get distracted by those questions. Let them ask whatever. Who's your wife? Who's your mother? Do you have any kids? Who cares? You know, it, don't worry about that. Sometimes I've seen witnesses get so hung up on that. Why are you asking about my mother? Why are you asking about my son? I'm not going to tell you my children's names. And it just, it makes your day a heck of a lot longer. So after we get to the, the introductory questions, then she starts questioning me about my responsibilities and duties at the time of this incident that I'm testifying about. And, you know, the key, okay, I'm, I'm not going to tell you exactly what was discussed at the deposition or the nature of what's going on. Uh, it's an insurance issue. Leave it at that. But I think some of the keys that you need to be aware of when you are giving a deposition or you're taking one is, A, be calm. As hard as it might be, you could be the most nervous Nelly on the face of the earth. You must be calm. You must control yourself. You can do that by controlling breathing. And well, this isn't a yoga podcast, but if you control your breathing, control the rate, the rhythm, I think it's going to help you. And when you're calm, you're able to think more clearly and to analyze, I think, what's going on. So remember I said when you walk into the deposition, the attorneys are sizing you up? Well, I size them up as well. So I go in and I say, all right, let's see what we got here. You know, this person looks nervous. This person looks prepared. This person looks disinterested. And, you know, that's kind of how it was when I walked in. And I looked and I said, hey, um, that one person over there doesn't look like they want to be here. And I just kind of sized everybody up so that I know what I'm looking into. So as the questions start, you know, you just remain calm and you listen to the questions and you think about the answer. It's not a race. You don't have to set out the answer as quickly as possible. You're better off to sit and to think about the answer before you give it. Because it's really hard to say something and then go back and say, nope, no, wait, 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 I didn't mean that. You know, because people start to wonder, are you really telling the truth? So calm and slow and deliberate, whether you're asking a question or answering the question. A deliberate delivery is important because it helps you think clearly as you're going to either give an answer or ask a question. So I think that, you know, for me, the three keys to success are honesty, being calm, and being deliberate. During the course of the deposition, it was roughly five and a half hours. During the course of the deposition, there, there came a time when I felt as if the lawyer was trying to back me into a corner or get me to say something that would help their case. And you have to realize that. You have to put emotion out of it because emotion cannot be in this type of legal proceeding. Just can't, okay? Um, are there times when you're at a deposition, something so emotional, and you're a witness and you cry, yes. But but I'm not talking about giving testimony for uh, a business matter or a legal uh, insurance issue. I'm talking about 
you know, those few times when maybe you're giving testimony about something that's happened to you, and it would be appropriate for you to display emotion because, you know, it's upsetting. But I'm, I'm saying, look, you've got to put emotion in its own compartment. You've got to set it aside for a little bit because you need to be quick thinking. And when they start asking you things that seem to you to be trying to push you into a corner or lead you down a path, then you've got to be even more, uh, more deliberate and more honest and think before you answer. You know, what happens, I think, is that some attorneys, they kind of strategically set up their depositions, meaning they're going to ask you a lot of softball questions up front. Maybe they're going to appear to be super friendly and really connect with you. But at some point during the course of that day, they are going to want to get out of you some specific information. Now, you've got to know that uh, depositions can be used for different purposes. Some of them are to make you admit something, some of them are just fact-finding, but you have no idea going into one what this person is looking for. So after being there three, four hours of giving you know, testimony, you can get tired and you can start to lose focus. And that's when some of these attorneys will sort of introduce the testimony or introduce the questions that they want you to give them a particular answer on. You can generally tell their demeanor changes, their facial expressions change, and you know, okay, that's a flag. I've got to be careful with what I'm going to say. I need to really thoroughly think about the question before I give an answer. Is that it is, if you are calm, it is relatively easy to read the level of preparedness that some of these attorneys have. Uh, you can you judge when an attorney is nervous. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not a great attorney, but if they're nervous, that would be advantageous for you. So you've got to be aware of that. And um, really, you know, there's those, those three tips that I've given you, honesty, being calm, and deliberate. I can't say more about it because you don't ever know fully to expect going into a deposition, what questions are going to be asked of you. Uh, going into the, the deposition, if you're taking it, you should have an outline. You should know what you're going to be asking. Uh, but again, you know, you can't control what the witness says. You can only anticipate and be prepared. If you want more information about depositions or you want to hear more about what I did yesterday, you can contact me. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Uh, you can go to info at utlradio.com. Um, very happy to discuss the details. And if you've got questions about deposition testimony in general, go ahead and contact me. You can you know, call, email, however you want to communicate with me. Send a message on Twitter or Facebook. Be happy to, to answer your questions. But uh, we're about 15 minutes into the show. I want to now open up the phone lines for live legal and business Q&A. And, um, again, that number is 347-855-8831. If you have a legal question or a business question, call in now, and I will answer whatever question you have. You want to bounce something off of somebody, this is your opportunity to do it here on utlradio.com. Uh, this is, again, our new live legal and business Q&A podcast. 
So in the meantime, let's get going with some of the questions that were submitted through email this week. Now, I want to start off with one um, that deals with a car dealer and purchasing a vehicle from a car dealer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the question so you understand what's being asked, then I'm going to give you the answer. All right, so uh, the question here, this is, um, I think, something that you probably have seen or heard before. Everybody knows about used car dealers, right? I mean, there's all kinds of stigmas. Some are great, but, I mean, there's just this general uh, negative attitude, I guess, towards this person who submitted this question. I'm not going to uh, read name because it was marked private. Uh, I bought a car from a dealer the other day and traded my car sight unseen. When I went to the dealer, I wasn't going to purchase a car, simply wanted to see what options I had. The price of the car was reduced, and they gave me a, a price for my trade. They uh, they required him to bring his car in from wherever it was located, he says, in another city. Um, and he told him that two years prior the engine of his vehicle was replaced. So he is identifying to the dealer that, hey, just so you know, um, you're offering me a trade-in price on this car, so you know that two years before this vehicle had its engine repaired. So he's being open and honest with them. So he traded in the car and he signed all the paperwork and he left with his brand new car. And one day after uh, this happened, the dealership called him and said that they needed him to sign some additional paperwork concerning the mileage. So if you've ever bought a car, you know that you've got to sign a mileage statement if you're going to be trading in your car. Um, and sometimes with a new car, you've got to sign the mileage statement for the dealership. So he thought nothing of that. Um, when he drove into the dealership, the next day, the day after the sale, they said to him, hey, you put 4,000 miles on this car. Completely untrue. Now, he says that it seems as though the person who sold him the car didn't estimate the trade correctly. Okay, meaning that the price they gave him for his used car, they gave him too much money. And so now he believes that they're trying to get him to get out of the deal. They're trying to cancel this contract by telling him that he put on 4,000 miles in one day and screw him over. So that's, that's his question. What can he do? He says here, um, it seems as if the person who sold me the car did not estimate the trade correctly. So now they're trying to go back and recoup the, their mistake. The financing was done and approved based on the price of the car they reduced the vehicle to. Do you think I have to return the car or agree to these new terms, or is this binding? This is a really interesting question. So just to summarize, he goes into a dealer to look for a car just to see what his options are. They tell him, trade in your car. We're going to give you a brand new car. He says, I'll do it, but I just want you to know that my old car here had an engine replaced two years ago. They say no problem. They give him a relatively high amount for his trade-in. He drives off with a new car. They call him the next day. They say, come back and sign a mileage statement. When he comes back, they said to him, this is right. You put 4,000 miles on the car. Now, this, you know, you have done all sorts of things. You've lied, this, you that. He feels as though they're trying to get out of the contract because the salesperson gave him too much money on the trade-in. And you know what? It could absolutely be exactly as he thinks. I've seen this happen before, so it's not 
a surprise that somebody would do this. And now he wants to know, what does he have to do? Does he have to turn in the car or is the dealership bound by the terms of the contract? All right. Now, a contract requires a few things. One of them being a meeting of the minds where, you know, you kind of both know what you're getting into. When you're dealing with a business, especially car dealerships, and you're an individual, courts typically will look at the business as being sophisticated, and they will oftentimes kind of slant their, uh, I don't want to say side with, give some deference to the fact that you're a customer and might not have a lot of experience negotiating contracts. So keep that in mind. I think here, to answer your question, I think that you can keep the car, and I think that they, the dealership, are bound by the terms and conditions of the sales agreement and trade-in that they made. You know, they might have made a mistake, but that mistake, unless they can clearly show it was a mistake, you know, they transposed the number, I don't think that that's enough to, you know, invalidate or void this contract at all. I think that exactly what you're saying, you, know, you feel like you're being screwed because they made a mistake. That's probably what's going on here. So I would suggest that you do have to do nothing. They're bound by the terms of the contract. Now, keep in mind, if they push this issue, they could very well turn around and sue you, in which case you'd be forced to defend yourself. And at that point, I think, you know, you've got to ask another question concerning how you do that. But for right now, I think that just because they've made a mistake, um, and, and again, it's not a mistake like a transposition of a number. It's a, a, a theoretical mistake on the value of the trade-in. That's not your fault. They signed the contract. They have that um, sophisticated knowledge because they are a business entity. So I think that you get to keep the car. All right. Next, let's jump into was I wrongfully suspended? Now, this happens all the time, too. Employment issues come up. And, you know, where do you turn? How do you know if what's happening to you at your job is legal? You know, every single person I've ever spoken to who is listening to somebody else talk about problems at work, what's the one thing they say? Sue them. Oh, that's discriminatory. Sue them. It is far more complicated than that, than it just sue somebody. Let's look at this question, okay? For an answering service, I took a message from a caller. The number in the telefield was correct. I rewrote the number in the message field and typed one number incorrectly. So instead of it being 904, it was 906, but the correct phone number was on the template. I sent the message to the supervisor so she could update it in the system. The supervisor did not verify the number and put in the incorrect number. A message was... Um, a message with caller's information was sent to the wrong number. And the asker of the question was suspended due to a HIPAA violation. She was told that it was her responsibility to verify the number before she entered the information database. And her question is, is this her supervisor's fault? And was she wrongfully suspended? Apparently she got suspended um, for this mistake. Now, a lot of factors here. First of all, most people in the U.S. are considered to be at-will employees, and that means that you're not working pursuant to a contract. You know, if you're a teacher, uh, 
or another profession where maybe it's difficult to have a contract. That's a different story. But most of us here in the workforce are at-will employees. That means that you be fired for any reason, as long as it's not a discriminatory reason. And you can, if you're the employer, um, if you're the, the worker, you can quit whenever you want. Okay? That's what at-will means. It means you can be fired anytime as long as it's for a non-discriminatory reason. It could be anything from your employer can't afford you, your employer has changed direction and doesn't want to, um, you know, retain you to do whatever job you were doing. So keep that in mind. Now, what's interesting here in this question is this idea of a HIPAA violation. Anyone know what a HIPAA violation is? Well, basically, it is a privacy law that affects the medical industry, and it prohibits medical providers from doing certain things, and it typically involves disclosing private information. But HIPAA is a weird thing because, um, well, let me ask you this. You ever go to a doctor's office, sign that sign-in sheet, and on the sign-in sheet, you can see the names of all of the other patients that were there before you. Well, theoretically, that's a HIPAA violation because the privacy rights of the individuals on that sign-in list are affected. Um, another HIPAA violation, just to give you an example, would be if a receptionist or secretary or doctor or nurse working in a medical facility accidentally faxed or emailed private information, private patient information, um, it's otherwise known as, as uh, uh, protected um, health information, uh, to the wrong person. Completely accidental, let's say. Let's say that the nurse accidentally sent a patient, patient's information to the, the wrong person simply because they interposed the number. That is technically a HIPAA violation. So this person wrote down the wrong number, gave it to the supervisor, and when the supervisor checked out the information, then she realized, hey, wait a minute, this is the wrong person, and I disclosed this information to the wrong party. So that is, in theory, a HIPAA violation. And so this, the supervisor suspended the employee. Do you have a claim here? No. Let me explain why. First of all, at-will employee, right? You were suspended, not for a discriminatory reason, but because you did something improper. You did commit a HIPAA violation by not double-checking the number. Now, is it something you did intentionally? Did you do it with malice? Did you want to hurt somebody? No. It was a mistake. We get that. But can you be suspended for it? Yes. And I think that, you know, where you want to go to look for that information is in your company's handbook or policy manual to see what exactly, um, you know, the ramifications of a breach in your duty is. I think in that instance that the employer is not at fault for suspending you uh, simply because it was you who wrote down the number incorrectly. And again, not intentionally but accidentally, but in the world of HIPAA, it really doesn't matter. So, um, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think you got much going for you there. All right, before we get to the next question, I just want to remind you, if you want to ask your question live on air, we've got about 
oh, I'd say 30 minutes left in the show. You can call in at 347-855-8831. Ask me your legal or business question, and we will discuss it on air. All right, next we've got a question about a contractor. How many of you have used contractors in the past and, and had something not go smoothly? It seems like for every person that's used a contractor with something that's gone smoothly, there are five people who have horror stories about it. So this question says, uh, faulty sump pump installation. The sump pump at my home failed on December 24, 2015. Christmas Eve, that must have been, right? Due to the pump getting clogged from debris and a dead animal. The pump was installed on the exterior of the home, nine feet down, a cylinder with no cover. The pump was there prior to home purchase in March 2007. The plumber and professional water damage restoration company, quote, has never seen anything like this. Basement flooded with six inches of water, carpet walls, and content ruined. Insurance is not covering the claim. Um, and he wants to know what his legal options are here. First of all, before I can even really get into this question, more information is needed. Um, you know, this deals with the purchase of a home and a latent condition that was existing, a condition essentially that was there at the time you purchased it. So I've got to go back and I've got to say, did you hire a home inspector? And if so, what did that home inspection report cover? Is it possible that the home inspector was negligent in his or her inspection of the premises. Now, I think that sump pump uh, inspections are generally part of routine home inspection reports. There are a lot of things that home inspectors either disclaim or they don't cover. Uh, they're not going to do destructive testing. They're not going to punch a hole in a wall and look and see what's behind it. But something like this might be something worth looking into. Look, pull out your home inspection report and find out was this other ever identified? Now, I don't know why you didn't give me enough information to address this issue of why insurance isn't covering it. It could be that there's an exclusion for water damage. It could be that there's an exclusion for uh, something to do with the, with the system itself. I don't know. And you can't even take a guess until you look at the denial letter that you would have received or should have received from the insurance company. So I would say, Contact your carrier, your insurance company, and ask them, if they haven't given you a letter explaining, ask them why it's not being covered. Then go back and look at your home inspection report. Hopefully you have one. And see if there's any mention there, if there's any possibility that perhaps the home inspector missed something. So it seems to me from your question that the issue is the fact that this cylinder had no cover on it, and that apparently how the dead animal got there. Uh, I assume he wasn't dead at the time, but certainly dead now. So you've got to go back and you've got to say, was there negligence here on somebody's part? You know, another issue is a little bit more complicated, a little more difficult, is whether or not um, a statement was signed by the sellers of the property acknowledging that there was you know, no latent defense, nothing that was wrong with the property, nothing that they were aware of very hard sometimes to prove that they knew that there was an issue with the sump pump and just covered it up. Um, but it's always another avenue. But this is complex. So I, we talk about on the show all the time that, you know, I think you have the ability to handle a lot of legal matters on your own, whether it's contracts or business related or even litigation to an extent. 
This one is a little more complicated. So for this situation, I would suggest that you do speak with an attorney because you're not really sure, A, if there's liability, and B, where liability falls. Who is responsible? Whose fault is it for this? You don't know. And there's not enough information here for me to be able to answer that for you. So I would suggest that you do meet with a local attorney and, and talk that over. All right, moving along, let's go to the next question. Do I have grounds for a lawsuit? An item of mine was sold with a written agreement via text. I would receive payment, which I never received. Do I have legal grounds for a lawsuit? Again, a very general question, not a ton of information here for me to go on. But in theory, in theory, you would have breach of contract claim, okay? Um, it really depends on, on, on more of a factual analysis here. Uh, was there, you said it was a written agreement via text, which that, that could constitute a contract, so long as the uh, elements of a contract are created here. So the fact that it's a text message, that doesn't do anything to me. It doesn't make me say, hey, wait a minute, you don't have a contract. Um, but what I'd want to see is what are the terms and conditions? Were all of the elements of the contract fulfilled? Was there an offer, an acceptance? Was there a promise to pay? You know, it seems to say from your question that there was. So simply stated, it looks like you provided them with your item and they never paid you. That constitutes, generally speaking, a breach of contract claim. Now, we talk about on this show all the time the fact that why would you want to represent yourself? And one of the reasons is you can't afford a lawyer. The other reason is that uh, it doesn't make financial sense for you to hire a lawyer, even if you can, in fact, afford one. So what you've got to do here is figure out the value of your contract, the value of what you sold. Let's say you sold a $100 item. And that this does constitute breach of contract, okay? Again, hypothetically. Well, you would have a claim. But do you want to go hire a lawyer? Do you want to spend $400 an hour, $300 an hour, whatever it might be? Because that's a situation where we talk about on the show often, it doesn't make financial sense. Why hire a lawyer to do yourself? Because you're going to be paying more than you could ever hope to recover. Does that make sense? Now, Keep in mind that there are other factors here that, that have to weigh in. Where was the person that, you know, you sold this to living? You talk about via text, I, this could be an online auction. This could be, you know, one of these sites uh, like Wallapop is one of these sites where you can post things and you can sell to people. It's not like eBay where there's more of, uh, of ground rules. Um, and there's not the, the, the PayPal protection you might have. So you've got to figure out where is this person? Is this person in your state? Because you might have jurisdictional issues. It might cost you more money to go after this person out of state than it would to just say, wow, this was really dumb on my part. I should have gotten paid first and then sent out the merchandise. But these are factors. They're, they're real realistic factors you've got to consider before you just jump into this and you know end up spending a lot of time and money so i hope that answers your question but again this is something that you need to determine what's the value now look if you let's say you sold something like a car which would really be dumb 
to do via text message. But let's just say you did. And the value of the car is, I don't know, let's say it's $10,000. Now we're talking about something that has more value. It might be worth it for you to at least speak with a lawyer and see if it makes sense. But this is really a factually driven situation. So I would say either gather more facts and then submit them and we'll answer the uh, the new question. Or if you think that there's significant value, then speak with an attorney. If you don't, you can do it yourself. Um, but be aware of those issues that I mentioned to you. All right, we're going to go through three more questions. We've got about 20 minutes left. Um, if you want to call in and ask your question live, you can do so at 347-855-8831. But in the meantime, let's jump into this next one. I am being sued for unpaid debt. What should be my next step? Um, question basically says, I feel helpless. And you know, look, when you're dealing with financial situations and you're facing significant, you know, debt, you can feel helpless. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is, um, is so frustrating is this idea of helplessness. You are out of control of your life. You don't know what's going to happen next. You're receiving telephone calls nonstop. It doesn't end. You can't get any relief. You know, you're taking the phone off the hook. You're putting it in your refrigerator. You're putting it under your couch. You just want it to stop, and you don't know what to do. At the same time, if you've got a significantly um, high amount of debt, credit card debt, whatnot, medical bills perhaps, well, you know, you can't afford to pay it back. So what do you do? Now, in this case, the asker of the question is actually being sued. So for those of you who, are, who have ever owed any money, you know kind of how the process works. You get calls from the company. Let's say it's a credit card company. You'll get calls from the credit card company directly. Hey, you missed your payment. Hey, when are you going to pay? And then after a, a while, maybe it's 30, 60, 90 days, whatever it might be, then you start getting calls from collection agencies. And those are the ones that seem to have nothing else to do in their lives except call you nonstop. And those calls are like 15 calls a day. You know what I'm talking about. After that, when they can't get anywhere, they either sell it to another agency and they try it again and there's this renewed barrage of phone calls or they turn it over to a law firm who will then sue you. And that's where we find the asker of this question situated right now in the middle of being sued. All right, a couple things here that you've got to be aware of. First of all, Here's a situation, again, that we highlight on the show. It doesn't seem to me that this person's going to have enough money to hire a lawyer to represent her. You might have to represent yourself. And we're not going to get into today on this program how you would go about doing that in a matter like this. Uh, this is something that we're going to save for a later date. But let me suggest to you this. You need to figure out when you were served with a complaint so that you don't default because default automatically gives the win to the person that's suing you. So what are your options aside from, you know, getting into how you would handle the litigation? I'm not going to do that right now. What are your options? Well, option one would be to call that law firm and try to work out a settlement. Um, you know, see if they're willing to take reduced payment. A lot of times people are willing to take maybe a 20% reduction without much fight and you can have your, your debt reduced and then maybe even establish a payment arrangement with them. 
That's a possibility. Obviously, like I said, we're going to brush over it, but you can answer the complaint and, and, and try to litigate it or at least buy yourself some time so that you can collect enough money to repay whatever debt you might owe. Uh, and then there's the final option. Well, there's, there's two options. Um, I would say if you hadn't been sued, maybe you could look towards a debt consolidation or see if you could get a private loan. Could it be tough? I know that. Other option would be bankruptcy, a chapter seven bankruptcy, something that again, requires a far more in-depth factual analysis than what's provided in the question. Um, the chapter seven bankruptcy is a way for you to discharge certain debts. There are certain debts that are not able to be discharged. Um, you know, taxes, federal taxes, um, the federal student loans, those sorts of things. But medical bills and unsecured credit card debt, that's stuff that can be discharged in a bankruptcy. And depending upon your situation, I mean, if you're being sued for $500, I would suggest you try to resolve that. Um, but if you have significant debt on top of the debt that you're being sued over, you want to consider the idea of bankruptcy. Um, what, what does it cost, you might say? Well, it really depends on where you live in the country. Uh, but typically, if you are looking for a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, you don't have a lot of personal property, just a lot of debt. You know, I would say a national average is between twelve and 1700 for bankruptcy. But I suggest that if you're that in that much trouble, and this is not your only debt, but this is the one that you're being sued over, you have to qualify for bankruptcy. There's a test, a special test that you have to determine. It's a debt-to-income ratio test. But if you qualify, that might be an option. So what I would, would say to you is take a clear, honest look at your financial situation. See what you owe. See what um, you know you can do to repay whatever debt you might be facing. If you can't do it, then you always talk to a bankruptcy attorney and see if that can help you. All right, moving on to the next question. This one concerns a verbal agreement. How can I get a verbal agreement more concrete? to keep the defendant from defaulting on a payment. So uh, according to the asker, I want a civil judgment. And I've been in contact with the defendant. They agreed on a payment plan. And apparently, uh, it doesn't say whether or not this person has missed the payment. But the asker is looking to get their verbal agreement more concrete. What can they do? Well, this one's pretty simple. I don't know what state you're asking this question from. I don't know how your civil judgment was reduced to writing, you know, put on paper. You must have received an order from the court that says judgment in your favor. Um, but if the judgment simply says that judgment in your favor and the person owes you, let's just say for argument's sake, a thousand dollars. And now you're left with, okay, I've got this judgment. Now what the heck do I do with it? How do I get them to pay it? And you called up the person and you said, look, I've got this judgment. You owe me $1,000. How are we going to do this? And the person says to you, I'll pay you uh, $500 for the next two months. How do you make that more official, more formal, something that you can rely on? Well, you put it in writing. You can create uh, an agreement. You can do it in a variety of ways. But, you know, I don't know what, what sort of size debt 
or judgment you've won, what kind of money we're talking about, you could simply, to keep it simple for yourself, just put together a written agreement that both of you sign that clearly, not a lot of legalese nonsense, don't go on to some legal dictionary and find all kinds of big words that even lawyers don't understand, just simply write it out. You know, you can say something to the effect of, um, in connection with a lawsuit filed, or a judgment, judgments in the amount of, or we agree that you will pay. If you don't pay, here's what's going to happen. And that could be um, interest or other penalties. You've got to go back, obviously, and look at the judgment itself. But how do you do it? Put it in writing. Will a verbal agreement hold up in court? Hard to say. Generally speaking, verbal agreements are enforceable. It's obviously much more difficult to enforce a verbal agreement than it is a written one. I would suggest that you definitely would want to, um, you know, something down on paper. That if this was a lawyer who was entering into this agreement over a judgment, it would absolutely be on paper. They might even try to put it on the record in court. Um, so that's what I would do if I were you. All right, we're going to hit one more question, and that's going to do it for today. Now, this one's a little complicated, so I'm going to summarize it. This is basically a temporary employment agency, and this individual works at a temporary employment agency in the tech field, and they work for that temp agency. They, that's who their employer is, and they are sent out on jobs to customers of the temporary agent following me. What happens is this. This gentleman gets placed with a company and they really like his work. What do they do? They offer him a job and they say, okay, listen, we love what you're doing. We're very happy with you. You've been here, looks like three months. Um, we want to offer you a job. And he wants to know if he can take it. Now, this is, I think, one of those areas where I've seen over the years a lot of lawsuits uh, stemming from these sort of things. The issue is this. You've got to go back and look at your agreement with the temporary agency. Do you have some sort of agreement? Is there some prohibition against you working for, let's call it the end client, the client with whom the agency has contracted? I'm going to say there probably is. 90% of the time, if not a higher percentage of the time, there is because they don't want you to use their to hook up with another company and then they hire you. A, they lose you. B, they lose, theoretically, the end user because now that position is filled and they're probably not going to go back and, um, and, and hire the company again until you know, they either fire you or you quit. So you have to be really careful because the other thing that you're not aware of is the contract that your temp agency has with the end user because there's always a contract between the two of them as well. And it might be um, a brief contract for the end user to come in and try to steal you. You have to understand that in this, this industry, especially in the tech field where I've seen a lot of temporary companies bringing in tech workers from overseas, helping them get their H-1B visa and then uh, sending them out to their companies. I have seen it all the time. They want to protect their investment. A lot of times 
they're funding the whole H-1B visa process. So that being said, can you take this job? I'm going to say probably not, but you really need to look into this. And this might require you speaking with an attorney, somebody that can go over the issue with you and kind of advise you. This is too complex a question to answer on this show without seeing any of the documentation. So I would suggest to you just from a historical standpoint that you're probably prevented from taking the job, but I don't know that without seeing the agreements. So I would say, look at what you've got, um, ask a lawyer, or if you don't want to hire a lawyer, you don't want to ask a lawyer, just go ask your agency. I mean, they're going to tell you whatever they want to tell you anyway, but at least, um, you know, you're going to know. Maybe, maybe you'd be surprised when they say, yeah, no, you're free to go take a job. And this is different than, um, let's say, a placement firm. These type of agencies are companies that hire you. You're, again, you're employed by them, and then they send you out. But you're their employee. So complicated, but it can lead to litigation. And the way I've seen it play out is that the end user, the person, the company that's offered you the job, comes back, gets sued, and then they don't want anything to do with you. So everybody loses all the way around. All right, that's going to do it for today. Glad to be back doing the live broadcast. Um, again, I want to thank everybody who subscribes to the show. Don't forget to check out the brand new redesigned, redeveloped utlradio.com website. Links, obviously, to all of our social media pages are there. Email, telephone number, you name it, it's there. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. That way you're notified when new episodes are put up. We're going to try to stick to the live program on Thursdays, obviously, as I said at the top of the show, replacing the interview show that we were doing on Thursday, just because I think that this can be more uh, interesting and, and, and slightly um, provide a greater benefit to you especially if you're dealing with legal and business matters on your own and need some guidance. It gives you the opportunity to continue to submit your questions via email, uh, via social media, to call into the live show at 347-855-8831, or to ask your question directly through the SpeakPipe widget that is available on the utlradio.com website. So I want to thank everybody who has submitted questions this week. You'll all be receiving a utlradio.com t-shirt. Um, my assistant or one of the production assistants will get in touch with you and make sure that we have your address. So I want to thank you for submitting your question. Uh, we're we're going to do, moving forward in, uh, in this new programming year, we're back on Monday with our business and legal news, and then we jump into Tuesday with legal Q&A business Q&A. Then we're going to come back to the live show, and then Friday is our wrap-up, our summary show. So uh, that's what you have to look forward to. Don't forget also to make sure that you subscribe to the YouTube channel as well as the podcast because there's different content on both. Sign up for the newsletter. There's discounts, free um, information. Um, you know, there's exclusive opportunities for you to, to get exclusive video and content, so check that out too. Um, and I just want to mention that if you are in the need of an Uber ride, uh, there's a special code that you can use 
to get a free ride that's worth up to $15. All you have to do is use the promo code Uber UTL Radio. That's U B E R U T L Radio, and you will get a free ride. But I was in the city yesterday um, for a deposition. I almost used an Uber, but I figured, hey, I could use the exercise, so I decided to walk. It was freezing cold, though. I wish I had taken the car. I thought my ears were going to fall off. Um, so if you're interested in getting a free ride at Uber, it's Uber UTL Radio. That's your promo code to get your free ride. That is going to do it for today. Don't forget to share this information with your friends, your family, and colleagues, and let them know about UTLRadio.com your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time.